0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast and the president of Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm here today with two of my colleagues from Chatham, Jenna Templeton, the vice president of academic affairs, and Joe McNeil, who is our interim dean. For the School of Art, Science, and Business, as well as a professor of chemistry. We're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, we're, we're going to talk about a recent decision by Chatham to reinstate uh, tenure, which had been re- removed in the mid-2000s. Um, and As this goes against a lot of the trends we're seeing in higher ed, we thought it might be an instructive case for others who are thinking about uh, the issues of what tenure should look like in this 21st century higher ed environment. We thought it would be useful to just give a one-minute summary of who Chatham is just to provide people who don't know us with context. So Chatham was founded back in 1869 Uh, as the first opportunity for women in Western Pennsylvania to get a degree. And for the first 146 years of its history, it had a, female-only undergraduate college, but it added graduate programs that were all gender in the early 90s, and today has about 2,400 students, about 50-50 graduate and undergraduate, and three different campuses. The university has been been thriving, more than doubling the size of the undergraduate student population since it went all gender in 2015. Uh, To start with, can I ask you both, well, first let me say welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you both joining us today.
1: Thank you, David. Glad to be here.
0: Um, So to start with, could you say when and why did Chatham make the decision
2: to phase out tenure? Hi, David. The uh, This is Joe. Uh, let me jump in by sort of reminding myself, at least, that memory is notoriously subjective, and so I'm going to try to represent a plurality, I think, of opinions on this question. Uh, but as you noticed, Chatham has historically been a women's college for many; had been for many, many years. And so I came to Chatham in 1997, and so in roughly 2005, I had just gotten tenure, and we were facing a, a serious challenge in our faculty. We had been, for many years, this traditional liberal arts institution. And so we had an undergraduate faculty that had a very traditional um, tenure focus, I think, that reflected the liberal arts tradition. It had a pretty strong emphasis on service. As we faced some of the sort of financial challenges that all women's colleges were facing at the time, we had started to expand out to these... um, Sort of all gender uh, graduate programs. And the faculty that we were hiring for them were traditionally sort of professional faculties who were in on essentially visiting faculty appointments. So they were all rotating one year appointments. When we set up these programs, they were, I think, very experimental. It wasn't clear whether they were going to work. And so this Faculty structure initially made sense for everyone. But as the programs became established, we ended up with a really diverse sort of a a divide in the faculty where we had the tenured undergraduate faculty We also had an emerging set of faculty that were now, had been at the institution for a number of years, but had no job security and also had no avenue for promotion, had no avenue for access to sabbaticals, those other types of qualities. And so there was a real, there was a need to address that divide. And I think that what we ended up with was something that was actually very much like our undergraduate tenure system, but we were facing those financial challenges of a small institution. And I don't, I'm going to sort of speculate on sort of where the board was, but I'm, sure that they were looking at sort of this need to maintain sort of a maximal amount of flexibility in the way that sort of they continued to restructure the institution. I think they had also gone through a couple of instances where they had to remove tenured faculty. That had become complicated and so they wanted to make sure that they sort of kept that flexibility and they saw a capstone system rather than a traditional tenure system as the best structure to use going forward. Can you say
0: a little for folks about what, it, what did the capstone system look like, um,
2: and how did how did it work in practice? Sure, absolutely. So the capstone system was very much like a tenure system. In fact, one of the interesting things is that as we moved away from tenure towards capstone, sort of the restructuring of the faculty manual actually increased the level of scholarship that was expected of everyone. And so it, it's not like we were moving away from sort of the philosophy of tenure, except that when you came up for what would traditionally have been your um, Tenure appointment, instead of getting sort of a lifetime sort of renewal of your contract, what you got was a five-year contract. And so every five years you had to sort of come up, it was viewed by the from the faculty perspective certainly as coming up for tenure again, but you certainly came up for something called a post-capstone review that continued to establish whether you were sort of achieving the objectives of your position and whether you were progressing with scholarship and teaching and the service in the way that the institution expected. So what we ended up with was, as more people progressed through the system, was a lot of people sort of going through these capstone reviews. At one point, we extended it so that uh, people on their second capstone and beyond got six-year contracts rather than five, but the sort of ongoing having to come up for evaluation, I think that's what defines our capstone as separate from a traditional tenure system. Just one point of clarification that I think would be useful for folks. Chatham didn't
0: actually remove tenure from anyone when it did the, the transition, but it, it phased in a, a new approach of all
2: subsequent hiring happening on the capstone line. Is that right? That's true. The, we, the, the language for tenure uh, stayed. In fact, I'm one of the, I was one of the last faculty members to get tenure under the, uh, the previous system. And so I, I kept that status, and all my tenured colleagues kept that status throughout the transition.
1: Great. correct and the last tenured contract that um, Chatham offered was in 1999 prior to this so after that everything did move to the Capstone um, Capstone contract system
0: great and and Jenna given given that that Capstone system seemed to have served the university quite well. Um, over this past two decades since it had been introduced. What was it that led um, to, to, to the reassessment of the system?
1: Sure, that's a great question, David. And as Joe said, you know, the system itself was, it was working um, fairly well. But, you know, as senior faculty came up for their subsequent capstone renewals, at their fifth or sixth year, and, and we had faculty who were on their fourth and fifth renewals I'm pushing towards their sixth renewal. Um, it really, they really, we learned, felt restricted in how they could grow their careers and invest their energies with this constant cyclical evaluation um, and, you know, it, and evaluated on the same criteria, right? It's not that, that that criteria shifted. So it was sort of this very cyclical five and six year review of the same criteria that didn't leave a whole lot of room for um, latitude for other endeavors in service in leadership um, even in different research streams so really felt that it was somewhat restrictive Um, and you know so even though in over 15 years no one had not been renewed for this capstone contract the possibility that it could happen to a faculty member at any time um, really was palpable, that fear and that morale drain that happened because of that, um, you know, co- sort of constant weighing of this, this, um, you know, this big pressure over you every five or six years. Um, and the interesting thing was it took faculty some time to really articulate that in this process. But I think that was a real... Key to what prompted this was the recognition that this was a serious strain and and you know morale drain on our faculty.
0: Yeah, and I remember being surprised the the session that we had, uh, Joe, with with you and I and and many of those faculty there. And it what what really stuck with me was that a number of the faculty who I would have thought as our our most dedicated our most invested in the institution and our, our students' success also express that feeling that they were making all that effort and yet the the university wasn't matching that in in our commitment to them. And and so, you know, you, you expect in any large group of people there will be some who will be dissatisfied, but but when when you hear from some of, you know, you you what who you think of as your real superstars that they're feeling that way that was a
2: real alarm bell to me and that was I remember that meeting very well, and I think that was the biggest surprise for me too they initially, when we adopted the capstone, our challenge was because we essentially increased some of our scholarly expectations, we had uh, some struggles with the junior faculty who weren't clear what the new expectations were going to be and so there was a initially there was a lot of effort made to make it very clear to all the incoming faculty what the expectations were and what they had to do and so it took probably somewhere between five and eight years to really get everyone on board and get comfortable and I think that at that point so I'll certainly I'll confess to it as, as a tenured faculty member I kind of just declared that a win and it's like all right we we had this challenge, we addressed it, the new capstone system is working, and no one's not getting renewed, and therefore everything should be good. And so absolutely, when I heard from some of the people that you think of sort of the bedrock of the institution who have been here a long time, expressing that sort of level of frustration and also, I mean, angst, obviously, but also the notion that it was very restrictive to them, that they felt like they couldn't sort of diversify their careers in trajectories that would be both good for them and also good for the institution, because they were coming up under the same sort of rigid structure every six years, and they, so they essentially had to, like, replicate what they were doing, and there was no room to experiment. They uh, totally shocked me, and I, it, it was galvanizing, I think is probably a good word. hmm so, so given that that
0: that reaction and the motivation to change, you know, one of the interesting challenges of going about this was Chatham has a very long serving board. So a lot of the trustees who had served when that decision had been made were still there. And so getting them to re-examine in this highly, uh, you know, Competitive environment for higher ed, particularly in regions like Pittsburgh and the Northeast, where we're seeing a decline in the number of high schools, you know, not necessarily a, a, an easy task. Can you say say a little bit about how you went about the process of making the case to to look at reinstating
2: ten, tenure and and how you engage with the board in that? Sure, and I'm I like I'm going to let Jenna start with this one because the uh, the headline. Faculty seek return to tenure. It's that's not a really attention-grabbing headline. It's the the board agrees it's a good idea. I think that's where the story is, and I think Jenna probably has a better perspective from how she initially engaged the board.
1: Sure. Um, thanks, Joe. Thanks, David. I think, um, yeah, and it's it's a key part of this is having the board. And, and, you know, they're the fiduciary res, fiduciarily responsible, you know, folks of this institution, and and um, you know from the, the cases that Joe referred to in the past, there was this amongst um, some of those longstanding board members an understanding that tenure could be expensive and that there were a lot of costs associated with it. And um, it hadn't been redressed, readdressed with this group in over 20 years. So these longstanding beliefs were clearly there. Um, they are a very engaged board in terms of staying on top of, you know, Current topics in higher education. So there have been numerous articles about tenure in the recent past, and and universities moving away from tenure. And I was, you know, on a on a regular basis receiving these from some of our board members. Um, and so we really engaged um, the academic subcommittee in conversation about this first. Um, and we had some of our staunchest, you know, uh, objectors in that group, but. I think the beauty of our board is that they are always willing to have these conversations and to look at the evidence and to understand different perspectives. And so we spent a lot of time working with that group and they, um, you know, uh, very thoughtfully added a member of the board to this committee that Joe led. And so that board member participated in a number of the meetings, um, you know, exchanged uh thoughts and ideas with joe and myself i had a couple of meetings with this board member um and then we would regularly go back and update the academics committee of the board about the process the progress and what we really really gained from those conversations was the different language that we had between the two groups right and i think it was really beneficial to be able to get that um that input, insight, and those questions from those outside of the academy, right? And to, to say, we are not understanding how this works, explain it to us, this is our view. And so those really um, engaging conversations helped to solidify, to really highlight what the differences were in understanding and what the needs were in helping everyone move forward. Um, you know, and, and to help them understand what their role was and how the board still retained oversight of the process and the, you know, the financial aspects of the university in terms of hiring faculty and maintaining faculty.
0: And, and Jenna, you referenced the committee that Joe chaired. So Joe, could you say a little bit about who was on that committee, how they were chosen and, and how,
2: how you went about your work? Yeah. So that was a, a memorable committee, yeah. <laughs> very active and engaged. So we did our best to uh, attract a group of people from across the institution um, that represented as many sort of constituencies as we could. So we had people from all three of the schools. We had um some faculty members. We had one faculty member who was tenured. We had some who were on multiple capstones. We also had some junior faculty members who are still in their probationary period. Uh, We even had one faculty member who is a professor of practice appointment at the time. So it represented sort of the diversity of the institution. And that committee was struck um, essentially, we just called for volunteers. They, I did recruit one person on when we needed sort of one additional representative to make sure we had sort of full representation. But it was essentially, it was a committee of volunteers that formed in the summer of COVID in 2020. And so one of the challenges was we had to learn how to meet on Zoom. That was a, a skill we were all learning. And we spent the entire summer of 2020 uh, working through these questions. And I think we should, I need to back up a little bit and just remind myself that when this committee was struck, it wasn't struck to bring back tenure. The, right, the initial conversation was, we have heard from the faculty that our current capstone model has some unintended negative consequences. How can we essentially tweak it, how can we improve it to make it work better for what we need? And so we spent most of that summer working, looking at different models of capstones that sort are of used by different institutions around the country, and we learned a couple of things. The first is that there is no standard. Tenure, even with its set sort of quirks, is sort of universally understood. Institutions across the country define a capstone model completely different ways. Some use simply annual repeating contracts, um, two to three year repeating contracts is a very sort of common um, phenomenon, but there is a a, a plurality of different applications. There is no standard. And I think it's one of the things that we learned is that the language of capstone to anyone outside of our institution is completely unintelligible because everyone defines it differently. I think that was a helpful moment. We also noted that compared to many systems, because we had such a long capstone period, five to six years, we were continuing to use a fairly robust annual evaluation in parallel with that. And that for our capstone faculty, the annual evaluation process, I don't want to say it was completely redundant, but significantly parallel to the capstone review process. Right? And so the first thing we would do when we were on the sort of the faculty review committee looking at a capstone review is look at the annual evaluations because right, the annual evaluations told you about the year-to-year progress. And we quickly asked the question, how could you not renew someone for a capstone if their annual evaluations were all positive? Right? It would be sort of very challenging to make that case. So what we eventually decided within the committee was that we could eliminate the post-capstone reviews if we sort of strengthened and reinforced the language around annual evaluations. It also, I think, has the really valuable um, quality that when you do this, you address any emerging problems as they emerge. You don't kick them down the road for four or five years and wait to see how they develop. You address them as they come up. So the initial program. progress of the committee was all about how to improve capstone and what really changed is when we then looked at well if we do this if we have capstone faculty whose contracts are going to renew without having to go through a capstone review well isn't isn't that actually tenure and so right it was right it's so close to tenure in in practice that what we realized is making that fix solved most of our internal problems. One of the external problems we were also recognizing was that hiring and recruiting faculty into the institution, and I think describing who we are and how we work to the world, was really being complicated by the language of Capstone because no one could understand it. And once we saw what Capstone looked like sort of across the country. It was clear why no one could understand it because there is no sort of coherent definition. And so making the structural changes internally resolved most of our internal problems. Rebranding it as tenure again, really became 70% outward looking. It's just how do we describe to the institution and, and tell the rest of the world who we are and how we practice? Because we really were exercising a tenure model and I think it's it was that sort of twofold step that we're like, we're so close to the tenure model, but without actually re-adopting the language of tenure, we lose all this ability to communicate sort of the benefits of the system that we have. I think in, in working with the board, I think that's where we began to find that common language, that sort of things that we were doing. If we would just take that extra step and call them tenure would actually sort of bring the institution lots of benefits as well as sort of the, the it is a still a very positive step for the faculty.
1: Absolutely. And oh, David, I just want to jump in here yep. real quick and say, you know, I remember as Joe was talking, you know, I remember kind of going along this journey with Joe, you know, because after he would have his committee meetings, he'd come and update me and, and, you know, sort of this, uh, you know, this really interesting back and forth about what is it that we're doing and where are we going with this and to really see that discovery was such an amazing process as we look back on it. Um, just really how that thoughtful conversation, discussion, and you know assessment and review of processes really can lead to new and interesting thoughts. Um, so it's a wonderful process, really. Sorry. Yeah,
0: no, I mean, I think you really do hope that this is a model of sort of, how shared governance could work. Obviously, this is one where faculty need to have a powerful voice. Joe, you referenced that in in that work of the committee, which had started in summer of 20 and and I know progressed throughout that, that otherwise very challenging academic year with COVID, you looked at a number of other institutions. Were there any of those that were particularly influential in your thinking or model as you were trying to come to what might work for Chatham?
2: The, uh, w- there were a couple of different institutions in Florida that had made the move back to tenure um, for slightly different reasons, but that both, I think, spoke to who we were. Uh, one of them was a school that was really looking to grow their, essentially, U.S. News and World Report rankings. They they were moving forward as an academic institution. They wanted to make sure they could re- could recruit the best and most talented faculty to fill their positions, and they said very clearly we need to have a tenure structure to do that and i think that also represents the trajectory that we've seen at chatham in the last 15 years i've been sort of very impressed with the way the the quality and the depth of our faculty has grown over the years and right we too want to continue to sort of see that growth and development progress uh, one the, As an aside, one of the other things that we stopped and looked at over that semester was where our peer institutions were. And what we discovered is that we had sort of risen significantly, and our peer institutions were now almost universally offering tenured contracts. And so it's always a challenge to hire the best faculty. And right. <laughs> There's this having tenure is not the only component, but when we were competing with our peer institutions that were all offering tenured contracts and we weren't, even though internally we felt like they were very comparable for a new hire, that was just such a barrier. And so we have lots of internal anecdotal evidence about people that we lost in the process. And we don't have the anecdotal of people who never applied in the first place because, right, they just never applied. But we, all of us believe that we were losing many of our sort of like quality faculty members there. The other institution that originally had tenure gave it up and brought it back In their discussions, they talked a lot about the ability to bring it back with their own definition of what tenure is and making it work for their own institution. And so their institution was different from ours. We didn't steal their model exactly. But I think one of the initiatives that said we actually can make this jump to tenure is this language that says we can speak to the board about tenure is not a rigidly defined structure, that we have the capacity to define it within the context of how it's going to work best for our institution. And the faculty are willing to have a conversation with the board about what that is. And let's, I'd like to come back to what that definition you settled on,
0: but as you were tracing the journey of that evolution of the work of the committee, I think there was a key point. I I believe it was at the June 21 board meeting where Joe, you first presented the thinking of the committee to the board. Can you talk about that discussions and then what was the subsequent work
2: that you had to do to get to the final model? Yeah, absolutely. So it was one of, I think probably the most helpful things was having a board member serve with us on the committee because our initial meetings we did sort of just within the faculty, we're all focused on, I think, working about how, fac- how Chatham was going to handle the reappointment and sort of the making sure that faculty members are continuing to do their job and behave professionally. And when, as soon as we started having conversations with our board member, what we learned is the the board largely trusts the faculty and the staff to, to be in the administration, to be self-governing and that mm-hmm. we'd always done a good job. This wasn't their main concern. Their main concern was all about what are the financial implications of doing it. And so we had to take a lot of the conversations that we were having as a faculty, not that. They were, I think, critical to get to where we were, but they turned out to be insufficient. We had to take that and then step back and ask the question, all right, if we're going to talk to the board about this, then we really need to learn to speak their language as well. And so we needed to talk about what was in the best interest of the institution. And so one of the things we spent some time doing was to quantify the amount of administrative effort that went into every post-capstone review and how... When capstone had been created, there were obviously none for at least five years. But right, we were getting to the point now where we were going to be doing 12 to 15 a year for the next few years, and that each of them were taking up over 100 administrative hours between the faculty review committee, the faculty member being reviewed, the administration. And that this was largely a redundant process, and it was sucking up a lot of resources, as well as impacting morale. Not that the morale factor was unimportant it was just not the the uh, key points to the argument and i think that one of the things that the, we learned at that board meeting was that the board was well aware of the challenges of hiring and particularly it's a it's a challenge every institution is facing of trying to diversify their faculty and make sure that you are bringing in the deepest, richest pools that you can. And so when we showed them what our peers were doing and the way they were sort of recruiting faculty, I think it was pretty apparent to people on the board that, oh, we really are sort of tying a hand behind our back if we want to reach out to this full, rich um, faculty group that we wanted to hire. And so they, uh, I remember that I had a, half hour schedule at the board and they gave me 50 minutes, which yeah, felt like a long 50 minutes, frankly, but they it was a really, I thought it was an excellent conversation. Uh, it was an, a challenging experience, I think, to get challenged on some of those things and push back. Uh, but really, I've, I also came away with the fact that we are all working towards the best outcome for the institution and that we just, it was a ongoing effort to make sure that we could bring our language together. And so what I brought to the board in that sort of June board meeting was a fairly high level, this is why we would like to do it, and this is what it would look like. And the feedback that we got at that meeting was excellent. In principle, this makes good sense to us. But we don't want to improve it until we can actually see what it really looks like. And so the challenge was go back, take all this high-level thinking, and put it into a redrafted faculty manual. Let us see the new language. Let us see the policies and the procedures that you want to implement, um, we continued to work with the board in that process to get some feedback from the things that they wanted to see. Uh, but I think that that was post that first faculty meeting, that was the challenge, was to essentially go back and completely restructure the faculty manual to let them see what the actual implemented language would look like. And I think it's once we did that, we had it vetted by the uh, the institutional lawyers, right? There was, I think there was some concern that I was like some sort of supervillain that was sneaking some <laughs> wild tenure language in. It's like, wow, I'm not nearly that clever. I'm a chemist, not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. but, but they just wanted to see that they weren't committing themselves to something that they didn't understand. And that when we said, we're developing a model of tenure that fits what Chatham needs and it fits within sort of the, the current Chatham structures well and will serve us all. I think they needed to sort of be able to sort of parse the actual language, um, just to be confident that they weren't signing up for something that they didn't fully understand.
0: And I think another issue that emerged there um, that was an interesting one, because in many ways, I think this is one of the more innovative elements of the new model, was how to handle professors of practice or clinical professors, um, because they are, are particularly a significant part of our health science faculty. And Chatham had gone a long way toward giving them as much as we could equal status with all the rest of the faculty. So could you talk a little bit about that element of it and how that evolved
2: in the final model? Yeah, that was, I think, the most challenging part of that second step, because one of the requests that we had from the board at the uh, June meeting was that they wanted to retain some structure where they could hire in faculty members separate from a uh, tenured contract, particularly when they're starting new and innovative programs and they want to have some window to make sure that the program is going to be successful before they commit to hiring tenured faculty members. And so we had often used the capstone model to do that. And so one of the questions that I was sent away with is, could the professor of practice uh, model do that? And so could we write language where the professor of practice was separate from the tenure model? And when we talked to the professors of practice about how to do that, they they argued very eloquently and vociferously that we had been moving towards creating this unified faculty. And now if we're going to sort of have it group of faculty that are tenured and a group of faculty that aren't tenured, that no matter how hard we try to make the systems fair and equitable, that we're sort of reestablishing that divide, that it just wasn't possible. And so we drafted a new faculty uh, vocabulary called exempt faculty that gives the board sort of those capacities to hire. But I think absolutely one of the most innovative and challenging things that we're going to do is we are now moving our professors of practice. We are removing the language professor of practice, and they are simply going to be professors like everyone else. And it's also, it's one of the things that I'm most excited about going forward because what we're going to have to do is broaden the definition of scholarship. And we have a long tradition of how to define and recognize traditional Models of scholarship as diverse as the scholarships in the performing arts. We are well comfortable with that. How do the challenge of incorporating professors of practice models, where primarily they are applied practitioners of their scholarship, uh, is going to be something that we're going to be working on. But I'm really interested in what it does in reverse, because there's a lot of emphasis on research these days in creating and crafting translational research. Research that is both defining best practice, but then in many instances, can you apply that best practice in an applied setting? And so by broadening the the definition of scholarship, we not only give our professors a practice, a model to incorporate traditional scholarship, they are often involved in collaborative relationships with our, our more standard, recognized academic faculty, but it also provides a window for our academic faculty to do translational research, to take the work that they're working on, bring it into an applied setting, deliver it and evaluate it in that setting. And it, so it's going to provide us a model for, I think, really sort of deepening and enriching the community interactions that, that uh, we can ask our faculty to develop.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I've always really appreciated about the, the the way faculty were assessed at Chatham relative to many of the other institutions where I've been or most of higher ed was, was the alignment of that core value on teaching and the educational experience and what we said. So the fact that, you know, we treat equally or encourage faculty to publish with students students, including undergraduate students, that we encourage them to collaborate with colleagues across disciplines, and we don't put an emphasis just on sole-authored publications. All of that, I think, seems to align well with the direction you mentioned, Joe, of the broadening of, of research that can have have a practical impact. Jenna, could you touch it all on what, what you see as the other elements? Joe has, in, in the summary of that, obviously hit on a lot of the elements of where this got to, but... Other elements you see as is this new model of ch- tenure that Chatham is going back to that are uh, are sort of common with what's out there that are distinctive in, in terms of how you see it.
1: sure sure um, and I think you know again kind of going back to that board piece that there is um, probably a distinctive piece in here that wow you know really as Joe described this sort of this new model really sort of continues our framework of capstone which was a form of tenure um without those those you know five and six year reviews. Um, but what, what the university gained in those tenure con, or those capstone contracts that will continue in this new tenure model is where the level of financial exigency rests. And so in most traditional cases of tenure, that rests at the institutional level. And what Chatham instituted with capstone and is continuing in this new model is that that financial exigency determination rests at the department or program level. And so that really does um, give the board that ability to still make the call on financial exigency at that level. Um, And it doesn't have to be that, you know, the university is on the verge of bankruptcy, um, but to, you know, to decide that a program or a tenure line needs to to be removed. But, you know, um, to kind of take from something Joe said earlier in in this process, um, that, They could decide a program, say, like in widget design, right? It's not sustainable for continued investment. And then those tenured faculty lines and that program would be dissolved, um, not the exigency of the university. And to me, that's a really distinctive part and a part that the board really appreciated in addition to this exempt um, faculty appointment type um, again, because Chatham has been and continues to be an innovative university to meet the needs and the demands of the current and future workforce. And to do that, we have to have the flexibility at a program or department level to make those moves. So I think that really is a key distinction of this model as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Now, in, in our discussion, you've already touched on some of the, the reasons for the change and and. Through that, the perceived benefits of, of going there, uh, making it easier to hire uh, a talented faculty and, and retain them, um, you know, some of the issues around the, the workload that will be saved, given that people weren't getting turned down for subsequent capstone reviews. Are, are, are there other things you see and in discussions with colleagues that have emerged from this that, that you see as benefits to, to the institution of moving back to tenure?
1: Um, For me, I think those are the two primary ones, right? The hiring of new faculty and the improved morale and opportunity for our current faculty to really expand um, and diversify what they're doing. Um, And, you know, again, uh, having a happy faculty means that they are engaged and our students are, you know, engaged in the work that they're doing and in their classes. Um, So that feels just like such a a tremendous, you know, win all around. Um, I think one of the downsides that we've talked about. It's not a tremendous downside by any means, but it is a recognition that there is additional work that will be done on an annual basis with these annual reviews. And a a significant portion of that work will fall to department chairs, program directors, and deans, as well as the faculty, um, in terms of addressing those ongoing um, evaluations um, and again, just means a different layer of work, um, but that's really good and important work as we continue to build and develop um, a really strong and engaged faculty.
0: And, and if you wouldn't mind elaborating a little on that, Joe, I know that one of the things you mentioned in the original where it seemed a redundancy was the annual review and then having the you know the subsequent capstone reviews. How does the what, what is the added emphasis on the annual review in the new model? And, and and how does that sort of play out in the system in terms of, you know, obviously the intent of that is hopefully the vast majority are not having an issue, but if there is an
2: an issue with performance of fact. Sure. I think I can take that on. One of the a broad sort of definition of the way the old capstone model went was sort of an assumption that. Everybody was doing it wrong, and we just needed to check to make sure they weren't. And that's right, obviously not a good description of such a highly vetted, personally motivated group of faculty that I think you'd find at Chatham or at any institution. And so the notion is that most faculty are doing exactly what they want them to doing most of the time, and so the annual evaluations are designed to give them that feedback every year that, yes, you are on track, you are doing what we want, and you can sort of rest comfortably that your performance is where we need it to be. And so it should take away that, that angst. Right. But we also need a model to make sure that people actually are doing the job that we expect them to do, and so they, there is some complicated language, and I'll skip all the details. But essentially, we are using a green, yellow, red model uh, for both probationary faculty and for tenured faculty. Our probationary faculty system is hasn't changed; it's, it's very traditional, and so I'm I'm going to assume everyone largely understands that part. For our tenured faculty, they will now do these annual evaluations, and The yellow model is one that we'll come back and talk about in terms of the challenges it's going to create. But we hope that we actually use the yellow model. It's designed to send a signal to the individual um, faculty members that while you're overall doing just great, there are areas of your performance that we need to address. And so there is some language built in that has the dean and the chair work with the faculty member to make sure that everybody understands what the concern is and what they need to be doing to address it. It doesn't have any implications in terms of the tenure structure, uh, but it's designed It's designed to be used. It's designed to sort of provide that feedback. We talked about this earlier. When you see problems emerging, rather than letting them develop for years before you try to tackle them on. So it is more work, but I actually think it's, really productive right if you can sort of address problems as they come up it's very good the red model i hope we never have to use right but it is designed to say to a faculty member you have not met the expectations of your position when you get a uh, red evaluation two things happen uh, the first is that has to be approved by the vice president's office to make sure that everyone is aware that this is happening it all, it starts a clock, such that if you get two evaluations that are in the red in any sort of rotating five-year period, then you'll actually be referred to a, a it's essentially like going up for tenure again, it's a, a post-tenure review model. but is designed to step back and ask, is this faculty member being treated fairly and appropriately in the annual review process, and are they actually not doing their institution? But there is a model there that can lead to a faculty member being dismissed for failure to perform their, their job. When you get that first evaluation, there's a much more sort of f- formal system where a uh, performance improvement plan is created Everyone signs off on it. There are metrics that have to be met. There are obviously timelines for those metrics um, so that there's no lack of clarity over what the problem is and what the solution will look like when you get to that solution. I, and I, it's I my it, hope that we'll never use it, but
1: it's there. Right, but I think a key part and a very thoughtful part in that too is that, I mean, obviously we still have moral turpitude ter- and you know extreme cases that that you know are. But I think the recognition of the faculty group of the board of, of myself, you, David, involved in this was that some of these things take time to change. Right. So if a faculty member is struggling with, say, getting their scholarship restarted or, you know, moving forward, you can't do that during the course of an academic year. And so the recognition of this rolling five year cycle saying, you know, okay, you may go from red to yellow next year, you may stay in yellow again. If you, you know, get another red the next year, well, then you haven't made that progress. But the recognition that the change takes time. And I think that's a really key piece of this, So, and a, and a benefit of it from the faculty and the institutional perspective of setting realistic expectations for change and improvement.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't agree more, Jenna. I mean, my read of it was since one of those motivations from faculty was, you know, if you're post-tenure and you're wanting to embark on a very different Type of research, you know, it's not going to be something where you're going to expect publications right in that. And and the point of that, being able to sit down with your department chair, being able to talk about what you've done, you know, here's the data I've been able to gather, here's where, where I'm heading. And so that everyone's aligned in an agreement on what's going. And so that's not going to trigger even a yellow. It's just, you know, okay, now the next year, we're going to say, okay, well, where's the evidence of that and whatnot. But you know, having lived in both tenured and untenured systems and seen them function, I think, you know, what many people would admit is one of the biggest downsides of tenure is in most of those systems, they don't have as rigorous a, a review as you've described. And the people who are often most hurt by that are the other faculty and the students in that department. If you have someone who it might be for a health reason or some kind of other crisis but if they've stopped doing their job you know who who who's harmed by that right and and so you know I think that it, it it really strikes me that this system offers a nice balance there of removing anything where faculty who are doing well and continuing what they do should feel insecure while keeping in those safeguards for, for students and the institution, can, can you just as we wrap up, can can you all reflect? This has obviously been a you know it's it, it's more than two two years since this start or coming up on two years since this began. A, a very thoughtful process in going through it, and any lessons, reflections you have from this, because I think a lot of other institutions, given all of the turmoil in higher ed, are probably going to be taking a look at their way in which they assess and promote faculty and the, the contract systems, things you would draw from this that, that
2: others might learn from as they go. Yeah, I'll jump in. I'll go first. The, uh, there's a, a two, two things here that I think are really sort of powerful. Uh, the first is that it's given us this, chance to find our voice. The faculty governance is always a challenging component. And I'm really optimistic that now that the faculty has seen that we are actually able to take an initiative, present a case, explain why it's in the best benefit of the institution as well as the faculty, and actually see it progress. If I had started a betting pool 18 months ago that that this would happen, I could probably retire because no one would think this could have happened. I regret they didn't do that. But I think my hope is that now that we have this, that we've sort of going to create a process where more faculty will feel – that their voice is also going to be heard and that there's time for them to step up, that they have to make the case, they have to sort of find that vocabulary. And I think that's the other point that I want to make is many times I think faculty and board relationships are viewed as antagonistic or certainly there's an absence of trust. And in working through this process, what I learned is everyone is working for the best interest of the institution, but the filter and the language that they use to view that is often so different that you can't see how it relates. And so the time that it took, really, it only took three or four months to conceptually come up with this. The real time was in developing relationships, in listening and understanding other people's attitudes and viewpoints, and finding the common language that we could all sit around and talk without it being defensive or confrontational and get to these solutions that work for us. And so obviously, the solutions that work for Chatham will not translate directly into other institutions, but the process has been so powerful. I've been very, very optimistic about it.
1: Absolutely. And for me, you know, I, you know, accreditation rests at my, you know, in my job, in my life, you know, and, and so I think about this from a continuous improvement standpoint, right? And institutionally, we are all working for continuous improvement and, and, um, you know, institutional effectiveness. And, and so reviewing faculty contracts, the process around that faculty evaluation, that should be a part of our, our DNA. You know, it should be another process and and policy and practice that we review on a regular and recurring cycle um, for that institutional improvement. And I can tell you and want to reassure folks that we're not going to wait another 20 years to do that again, right? This needs to be built into our cycle of assessment and evaluation um, on a more regular basis.
0: Although I'm I'm hoping that with all of the effort that's been put in that this, you know, while we want to make sure we're, we're, we're oh. checking it, that we're, we're not going to be asking Joe to
1: reconvene this. <laughs> no, no, times. no, 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 absolutely not. I don't think that will be the outcome, but I think we need to say what is working, what yeah. isn't working. Right. And to not just assume that for 20 years, the same system is going to work. Right. Not that we have to fully change it, but, you know, as Joe said, at the beginning, you know, we started this to kind of improve the system we had. And the beautiful outcome of it was we, we changed what we called that system and, and, and components of that system. So I don't, I, you know, I don't foresee and I hope we don't have a whole, you know, change moving forward, but to continue to tweak this to make sure it is the best for the institution, the faculty, and, and most importantly, our students.
0: Well, and, and, and it hadn't been 20 years, Jenna, right? Because right when I got to Chatham in 2016, we it did, was clear right. that there were some real issues with the system, right? And so, they they were more in the tweak category, right? right. We, we we combined some of the initial reviews, so you weren't hired on a one-year contract, but a right. two, and we extended from five to six. So those were valued, not nothing like what, what we've done now.
1: But absolutely no, and we and we have to recognize yeah. we did have those conversations. Yeah, um, absolutely.
0: Great. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time and, and for your leadership in uh, in this change. I, I, I know it's something that I feel will greatly benefit Chatham as we're going forward with our next strategic plan. And I hope that others will find it interesting. And maybe you'll even get some calls that, uh, you know, get get a consulting gig or two, Joe, since you didn't lay down those bets two years exactly. ago on this. Exactly. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you. All right. Thank you, David. Thank
1: Bye-bye. you, David.